Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 23 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Allison Moss, the founder and CEO of Type A Brands. Known for their award-winning aluminum-free deodorant, which features sweat-activated technology, Type A is on a mission to help people lead healthier lives without sacrifice. In this episode, Allison shares with us her career journey from working in marketing for top beauty brands such as Estee Lauder, MAC Cosmetics, and L'Oreal Paris, to launching her first company and hitting a million dollars in revenue in just their first year. After recently raising $2.4 million from investors, Allison shares some helpful advice about the fundraising process and some personal mantras that help keep her positive and confident each day. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Allison. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear your story, Type A. Um, I know you have an amazing deodorant brand right now, and I'm excited to hear your story of how you got there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to share it. So let's get started. Um, Early days. Tell me about your childhood. Where are you from? Um, I am from greater Los Angeles, uh, born and raised California girl. Uh, Had a good childhood, um, pretty uneventful, fortunate to, to have had a stable childhood. And when I was looking at, you know, the next step after high school and going to university, I was very drawn to leaving LA, getting as far away as possible for some unknown reason. Um, So actually uh, went to the East Coast and went to Boston University. And um, that kind of was the start of my transition to spending the the majority of my adult life um, on the East Coast. And yeah, I went went to BU, lived in the cold. Um, learned how to adapt to snow very quickly. Did you love it or hate it? I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. I, I think one of my favorite compliments for a long time was when people would be like, I can't believe you're from California. You seem like such an East coast girl. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. Just there's something about, um, you know, certainly I love the, the history in Boston and just, you know, there's just so much, um, so much more that's happened, um, and, and so much more to explore and dive into. And I think that the, also the academic atmosphere of having so many colleges and universities right there was really, mm. um, really wonderful. And, but beyond that, just, I moved to New York after Boston. Um, and I was in New York for almost 12 years and just the pace of it. I talk fast. I think fast. I walk fast. I think it's just <laughs> Is that what East Coast girl really means? Because I'm an actual East Coast girl. I grew <laughs> up in Delaware. I lived in New York for many, many years. And so I was curious kind of like what people's uh, thoughts of that are like East Coast mentality versus West Coast. I don't know. I mean, then, uh, there's definitely a difference in a cultural difference in the lifestyle on the East Coast and West Coast, having lived in both and now being back in California in mm-hmm. the area again. Never thought that would happen, but it's great. Um, but yeah, no, there's um, over time as I've matured, I've come to appreciate and value both. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, I just wanted to move fast. And so Boston and then New York just seemed like a really good, like it just was a fit. It like really worked for me to do that. I think. Yeah out here, there is like, I don't know, slower pace of life is not the right way to say it, but definitely, um, you know, it is a different approach to life, different lifestyle, different mentality. Right. So when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an actress, which, um, <laughs> so LA, <laughs> uh, so LA. Uh, that morphed into being a Broadway dancer, or Broadway star. Um, cause I did a lot of dance growing up and actually into adulthood and still do, but 
ultimately wanted to do more than that, um, was always a thinker, was always very strategic and probably somewhat, you know, ambitious as a kid. I think it's probably not a surprise in retrospect that I ended up in business and having my own business. How is that? What do you mean? I would always be working on, I guess you would call it a side hustle now, but you know, I always kind of had a little business going, um, whether I was babysitting or I started a friendship bracelet business in middle school, making it sell into my friends or, you know, I started a small charity in high school and, you know, helped donate goods to, to needy families. And just, I was always doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like the idea of building and creating and, and making something that had value for others. Yeah. So you're at BU in Boston and, uh, did you have any internships or jobs while you were in school? Um, quite a lot. Um, I definitely stayed busy, had, you know, jobs on the side, was involved in the school, um, throughout my four years. I actually went to Boston university because of their college of communication and their, their comms program. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I think I kind of knew I wanted it to be in business, um, and was sort of leaning toward marketing. And even though I was a comms major, that was how, what I figured out over four years. Um, I ended up doing a lot of internships in my major and because our school really supported that and encouraged it. So a lot of um, PR internships um, and right out of school landed PR jobs because that was what I had internships in and what right. I had experience in. And um, I was very quickly able to recognize that PR was not what I wanted to do. Great, great skill set. I think, I think, well, I think there's two things. I think one PR... It's, you're only telling part of the story, I guess, is the, is the synthesis of it. Like you, you know, I wanted, I, I wanted to be thinking bigger in terms of the marketing strategy and getting more involved in the product. And so, you know, PR is really just the communication piece. And I was more interested in what made the business tick and sort of the bigger picture. And as it turned out, as I got involved, as I went down my, my career path in beauty and marketing, I got very um, interested in and involved in the product marketing piece of it, bringing a product to market from the science and the chemistry of how a product is developed and formulated. Not that I'm a chemist, but just I'm fascinated by that and learning you know, through observation um, what sort of seems to make formulas work and tick. And then into how do you really translate that to the customer and you know explain to them what this is, what it does, and why it's good for them and why they might want it. Um, and I just, that, that storytelling was, um, something that I really gravitated toward. And so, you know, kind of, I, from, from my PR, very short, short lived stint in PR, um, actually was fortunate looking for a marketing role, um, was fortunate to land one at Estee Lauder companies. And so that, that began what is now about 20 years of beauty for me. Um, and I, you know, kind of started at Lauder beauty was fun and interesting as a category and it was marketing, which is what I wanted to do. And I just kept going forward from there and sort of, I guess, never looked back. So what was it about marketing at SD Lauder that kept you going down that path? Honestly, I think I was just continuing to grow in my career. I, I very much have approached my career as one foot in front of another. Mm-hmm. I have a distinct memory when I graduated from undergrad and I was just so excited at not knowing what was out there, but knowing it was going to be great. I was like, I don't know what my career is going to look like. I, I, I knew it wasn't going to be in PR, even though that was kind of the job I was starting. But I was, I was excited because I felt like there was just tons of opportunity and I couldn't wait to see how it unfolded. And I didn't necessarily have a roadmap for it. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of how I've approached my career is I try to you know do each job as well as possible and learn from it. And then it not looking, you know, 10 or 20 years down the line, which I don't know if this is good or bad advice. I think some people would say like, know where you want to be in 10 years. And it's not that I didn't, well, a lot of times I didn't know, but I knew where I wanted to be in six months or a year. I knew what I wanted to get out of the moment that I was had, that I, that I was living at that, you know, just in that minute. Um, and so that was kind of how my career progressed. I was at the Lauder brand for a couple of years and then I was at Mac and this was right after Mac had been acquired. Um, so it was still fast growing and super young. I mean, it's a great brand now still, but, um, it was a really exciting time to be there. Um, in retrospect, by no means a startup past part startup mode, but still kind of that, you know, a little bit of earlier days. 
So I, you know, in each role that I had there, I just kept, you know, sort of, I was excited about what I was doing until the point where I felt like I was time to learn more. And Mm -hmm. then I sought a new role, um, to kind of build my skill sets. Um, I left water in, um, 2006 and it was really about, okay, I think I've outgrown, not that I've outgrown the company. Certainly there were, there would have been lots of opportunity to stay but I want a new perspective. I wanted fresh perspective. And I re- recognized that, you know, different companies have different corporate cultures. And, um, and I was lucky enough to be able to join L'Oreal. And I started at Lancome brand. And then I was at L'Oreal Paris for a few years. And um, along the way, still trying to figure out exactly what I was going to do, went and got my MBA part-time. So it was kind of a busy time in my life. So what are some of the takeaways um, from this incredible career you've had in the beauty industry? What are some of the takeaways that you've taken with you as a founder? I think the biggest takeaway is you have to go after what you want. Um, it, it doesn't just fall into your lap and you have to kind of make your own opportunities. Every time that I was you know, s- sequentially rising through a company or through different brands, um, you know, I... I went and I asked for what um, what was interesting to me, and I went and asked to take on more. And I went and you know looked for mentorship and guidance. And I went and looked for opportunities where I could dive in and learn something. A good example is at L'Oreal Paris, digital marketing was something kind of new and something that was done by this other team that wasn't the brand management team. I ran a hundred million dollar ish business for the lip and nail category. Um, which was amazing. And I was able to grow that business. And that was really exciting. And as I had, you know, started to really get great traction and be able to turn that business, you know, from decline to growth, I was like, well, how can we continue this? And what is happening out in the market that we're not seeing? Well, how are the dynamics changing? And of course, it was digital. And we were just starting to dip our toe in the water as a, as a brand. Um, so I took on the role of looking after digital for all cosmetics. Cause I said, I want to learn more about this and how can I get involved? And that'll inform certainly what I'm, you know, technically in charge of, but also just builds another skill set. I got to have meetings with digital agencies and it opened my eyes to this entire other world of marketing that I didn't really know existed. Um, so it was just kind of going after, um, those opportunities, being proactive, um, kind of always being your own advocate. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. And so you mentioned skill sets. What kind of um, skills did you take with you from these jobs that have helped you in entrepreneurship? A lot of grit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Learning to, you know, let learning to take away the takeaways that mean something. And there's also, there's, I think in any corporate culture, there's a lot of politics um, and there's, there's good actors and bad actors and, you know, really learning to kind of let the things roll off my back that I don't need to have weigh me down. Um, but also really be humble and open to the constructive feedback. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things that I've taken into smaller brands I've worked with more recently and into type A is, how do I, even when it, even when you don't want to, even when it kind of sucks or it hurts, like, how do I make sure that I'm listening to every, every piece of feedback and really filtering for the things that I might not like, but need to recognize are important. And then the things that aren't productive and letting those go and not letting them get me down or wait, or, you know, or distract me. Yeah. So how have you been able to kind of filter those things and not let the the bad things get you down? I feel like it's just honestly a lot of practice. Um, I, I, it's a skill. It's kind of a muscle that I've built over many, many years because there I can, I can relate to 
um, thinking about times in my twenties and even my early thirties where, you know, sort of little comments could really, you know, set me off emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I was sort of, I would always like, I would take it in. I wouldn't lash out, but I would just makes, you know, it, it really gets you down. And then I recognized also that I wasn't, um, I wasn't happy. I didn't want to live that way. And so it was just sort of a power of like mind over matter. I'm going to actively put these things aside and focus on what is good for me and what's positive. So what do you do to put things aside? Is there any kind of, uh, you just go and do some yoga? Like what's the trick? To, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what does the trick? Um, I, 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 I'm trying, honestly, not sure that I have a really great, like great trick. Like here's the silver bullet for you. Um, I will say over the years, over the 20 years that I've been in, in the beauty industry, I have, I've worked really hard to surround myself with people who will tell it to me like it is. They do, they do give me the honest feedback. They're not just telling me nice things. Um, but they're also kind, considerate, compassionate, passionate, you know, compassionate, empathetic, um, good people. Um, and I, I feel like in my life too, like the more I surround myself with the people who, you know, treat me the way I want to be treated and vice versa, um, and are sort of positive influences, mm-hmm. the, the negative falls away. You're yeah, it's kind of like a it. trusting their intentions. It's kind of like maybe you've had enough time to build these kind of relationships with a, your support network or, or system. And it's because you've been able to maybe, uh, trust their intentions over time and realize that when they do give feedback, that it's in all the best intentions. Yeah, no, I think absolutely that's right. And it, and it comes across, you know, in, in a way that's not um, harsh or unnecessarily, you know, unnecessarily yeah. harsh. Yeah. They can communicate well with you. <laughs> I feel like, yeah. you know, we all have those people, you know, that um, they can communicate super well. And then there's the group of people that don't know how to say things very well. <laughs> yes. And I think it's so true. And I feel like um, you can consciously sort of Yes, you might work with a group of people, but you can sort of favor and lean into the conversations that are most productive and make the other conversations with the people that are maybe not as productive, really transactional. We're going to do this business and then we're going to move on. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's a lot of who you surround yourself with. Yeah. So tell me how you transitioned from working at these awesome beauty companies to starting your own business. Yeah. So, um, slight like left turn after I left L'Oreal, I had gotten so interested in digital that I was like, let me learn digital from the inside. And that's not going to be at a beauty company. And so I actually went to AOL and I worked in their digital media group. And I looked after marketing for a number of their digital media brands. Um, and I stayed in the digital tech space for a little while that actually brought me out back to California. Um, and then once when I was back here, I you know sort of really missed beauty, and I had also personally really transitioned to working to to using more clean and natural brands, and so I wanted to get back into this category, this industry that um, that I loved and that and that I really felt like home, um, and I wanted to work with brands that really aligned with my personal values. So I ended up actually working with an Australian skincare brand um, called Jerleek. It they have some of the most amazing, lovely skincare I've ever used. Um, really beautiful heritage brand. And it was an amazing role. I got to look after North America for a couple of years um, with them and then actually went and worked with Beauty Counter for a little while and then was working with some other brands out here. And that was when I had the idea for Type A. So Type A was really born out of my professional journey to date. I had you know more and more, especially in California, working with smaller brands um, and, and looking after sort of marketing from all angles, become really immersed in the product process soup to nuts. And so bringing a product to market, all the things I was saying earlier, um, I was really hands-on in doing that for a number of other categories. And then personally, I, was, I had switched to an aluminum free deodorant didn't find anything that was, um, great, um, or even really good. Everything was, um, you know, disappointing and I tried dozens. And so kind of always having that product head on and not really ever being able to turn it off, um, started to dive deep into what was working, what wasn't working and had an idea for how to do it better. And so that was sort of, I had just had my second, um, my second child and I thought, you know what, now is the, 
best time. I'm sort of on this, you know, maternity leave break. I have a lot of free time. Baby slept a lot. And let me just go after starting this, seeing if there's legs for this product concept. And if there is, let's start a company. And so how did you test? Did. How did you test that? How did you see if there was legs? Um, I worked with a freelance chemist in my network. Um, at this point too, I was, you know, I think part of my confidence in being able to take that leap of faith was the network that I had built over my career in beauty and just knowing there was so much I don't know. There's so much I know that I feel confident I can, I can execute. And there's so much I don't know, but I know who to call that I trust will be a great advisor or can point me in the right direction or can get me the right resource. And so got to this freelance chemist who I knew through my network, um, shared with him the concept. He was like, yeah, no, I don't think that's going to work. And I was really? like, no, Why? no, I, I, what wasn't going to um, work? Aluminum free? So the idea, not aluminum free. So the idea that I was trying to bring to life, which we did, and we actually just got a patent on this formula concept, which is crazy. Thank you. Um, it was to mimic a time release. And I said, there's, you know, a plenty of actives that seem to be pretty functional in these deodorants, but they peter out over time. How can we extend the longevity having worked in clean skincare? How can we sort of think about clean versus natural? And if we set that bar for clean, and not focused on trying to be all natural with, you know, ingredients you can know and eat. And that, that's a different approach that's great for some categories, but it was limiting when it came to the performance of a deodorant. So for those that don't understand or know what you, what you mean by clean versus natural, because this sounds the same, I think, to a lot of people. Can yeah. you kind of explain that? Absolutely. So first of all, there is no um, standard regulation or definition around either term. Um, natural in the industry, maybe a little bit less consumer-facing, um, it tends to be achieving the highest level of natural ingredients possible. 100% natural, 98% natural, 95% natural. And to consumers, it often translates into ingredients that you can recognize. It has coconut oil, or it has this particular, you know, it has a, a you get. Um, so aloe and not to say those are bad ingredients. We use both of those ingredients. Um, but when you limit yourself to only sort of whole or, or very lightly um, touched in natural ingredients, um, it's limiting from a formulation perspective. So what, when I say clean, what we mean is really um, down from the source until formulation, making sure that every ingredient ticks all the safety boxes and is um, and that we're that we're sourcing it from sort of very beginning until formulation, evaluating it for safety. So we're just comprehensively screening every ingredient, but we're not picky about whether it was um, you know just came off of a tree or whether it was created in a lab. Mm. And I know for some consumers, synthetic can be you know a scary word. Um, a synthetic just means it was made in a lab. It could be from, you know, not petroleum drive, but from a plant-based source. But what we've done is taken these molecules or taken these elements and reworked them into something that has been tested and is thoroughly safe, but also has advantages in the formula to kind of hold it together better or be lighter on the skin to allow it to absorb more quickly, to allow it to mimic this time release that we've created, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. So sense. how did you, yeah, it does. Thank you for explaining that. Um, how'd you come up with the name type A? So once we had a, once we had a product, uh, we, you know, naming was an interesting challenge when you're building a brand from scratch and you really have like everything is white space. Yeah. It's a lot um, of pressure. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> and then of course, you know, the legal checks of, boy, I have this great name. Oh, wait, somebody else already. Right. Had um, so you know, I came up with type A because we were looking at this product and we said, what is it about this product that's special? It overachieves your expectations. It's got your back. It's going to keep you protected. It's working hard for you. This product is type A. So it really was born out of the product experience of the original deodorant. But then beyond that, I think we thought, even if, well, even if you're not type A, don't you want your deodorant to, to be type A? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be appealing? And can we transform type A into something that, you know, has a bit of a positive connotation. Um, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, you can, you can be type A, um, and, you know, be productive in your life, but you can also really, um, use type A for a force for good. Right. Yeah. So this product development process, not to take it back, cause it sounds like your name came after the process, but, um, 
tell me about this product development. It sounds like you found this freelance chemist. You can you came up with this perfect formula. I mean, product development, I think, is a is a pretty big roadblock for a lot of entrepreneurs. So how did you overcome that? Yeah, I think for me, that was actually one of the most approachable pieces. There were other pieces that were a lot more daunting, like how are we going to get it manufactured? Um, or, you know, finance and accounting, separate conversation. <laughs> um, you know, this was something that I had overseen the product development process a lot in, in recent past. And so that felt very approachable. Um, the formula came together very quickly and working with a chemist, what ultimately happened was first I said, Hey, I have this idea. And he said, no. And I was like, okay, that means it's a good idea. And then I said, let's dig in and understand what challenges you see from a chemistry perspective and how can we work to overcome those? And as we discussed, he was like, yes, I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. And that was how it started to create a formula that has a moisture that's moisture triggered effectively. That's what our formula is. The mimicking of, of time release is that every time you sweat, the formula wicks that sweat away. And in turn, that releases just a little bit of the odor protecting complex. So the moisture triggers the release of the odor protectors and that over the course of the day keeps you protected a lot longer. And that's what the kind of patent is around. Um, but it was, it, it, it actually came together in a way very quickly and easily compared to other products that I've brought to market with other brands. Um, which was very exciting. And, and what about the packaging? Because yeah. the packaging is very unique as well. Yeah. So I uh, wanted to formulate a based on de like delivering the most efficacious, highest performance, longest lasting formula possible, and then figure out the packaging second. So that that's exactly what we did. And I went through, granted, with all the type A talk, of course, I'm a little type A. I mean, let's hear it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shocking. This is a surprise for everyone. Uh, so I went through a, you know, working with packaging vendors I'd worked with in my past, called in samples of everything I thought could be a possibility. I wanted to mimic what people loved about their current deodorant, which is mostly stick solids and swiping it on and it's fast and easy. And if it possible, improve on that. And that this tube did that. And so that was really how it came together. It's fast and easy, just like a stick, but you can also, you can clean it off. You can control how much you use. There were some advantages. It's, it's, it feels nice in your hand um, that we saw that also we think consumer and we know consumers value right now, which is super awesome. Yeah. So you have the packaging and the formula and the product. So tell us about how you went to market. Yeah. So, you know, most accessible is D to C. I had overseen some e-commerce um, in, again, my recent past. So that was sort of um, approachable as well for me. And um, launched this uh, April 2018 as a D2C brand. And we were fortunate to have the opportunity to chat with Credo Beauty right around when we were launching. And we're able to launch exclusively with Credo right after we launched on our site. Nice. And that was just amazing. One, because they, you know, the values that we aspire to as a brand new brand are the creed is the credo standard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to be able to just link up with credo from the beginning, not only set the standard for what we're trying to do in terms of extreme radical transparency, every ingredient and fragrance is on the back of the pack. We're really trying to be honest and open with our consumers and just have a dialogue, you know, truly build trust and be there for them in the way the deodorant's there, but as a brand. Um, so Credo allowed us to kind of deliver on all of that and just explain it really succinctly, just being at Credo. And they're also just amazing humans who are doing a kick-ass job of building like a clean beauty retail empire. They're amazing. We couldn't love them more. So that was awesome. And then from there, it was really building our D2C business. We took on a few additional specialty retail partners, Goop and Belaine and the Grove Collaborative. Um, and we did take, um, uh, we did open up to Amazon, but really focused on D to C, um, for the first year and a half. Yeah. And I seen there are some strategy and reason behind doing that. At the time, um, I think this is also me being super deep in it. So who knows how the rest of the world actually sees it, but the D to C landscape has you know gotten more challenging cost of acquisition, um, just the noise level. It, it has been over the time that we've been in market has gotten more challenging. But in 2018, we were coming off of a couple years of lots of brands it, having seen explosive growth and really um, being able to cement a foothold very quickly in their category. 
via launching on D2C and leveraging you know, paid social advertising to gain awareness traction customers. Um, so we followed that same playbook to some extent, but we you know, certainly also followed our own path in that. Um, so we, you know, have done a lot of, um, we, we've been able to reach a lot of people through social media. Um, but we've also looked to a lot of other, sometimes more traditional avenues like product sampling, um, and, you know, some retail partners. And, um, we always knew that D to C wasn't going to be the end game for this brand. It was just a really great way to get off the ground. Right. And so fundraising, I'm, I know you've raised some funds. Let's talk about how that's gone for you. How, tell us about fundraising. <laughs> oh, the joys of fundraising. <laughs> um, yes, we've raised some funds. Um, my husband and I, I have the most supportive, dedicated husband in the world um, to actually encourage me to do this, which is amazing. Um, and it's I thought also, I had the most supportive, dedicated husband while supporting me, but okay, maybe we'll, I'll let you have this one. <laughs> well, I could say maybe we both do. Um, I think there's a lot of good guys out there, but I've got, I'm luckily full to have one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we bootstrapped it, um, up until just post launch. And then I realized the, the dynamic in the market deodorant category was exploding. There were a lot of new entrants. Nobody was doing it the way we were doing it, but it doesn't mean that it, it was still noisy and crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were getting a lot of traction because there was, there's so much sort of latent pent up demand for aluminum free and there haven't been good solutions until more recently. Um, or haven't been as many. Um, so, you know, things were scaling very quickly and we realized that we were going to need capital if we wanted to take advantage of what was happening. Um, with this business. So started a friends and family round that turned into a seed round. And um, in, you know, sort of two waves, um, first in 2018, and then extended in 2019, raised uh, 2.4 million um, in in our seed round. Which was, um, but it was, it was a slog. It was, um, you know, kissing a lot of frogs, basically. (laughs) Kind of like dating, you just got to keep talking to talking and talking and talking and sharing your story and fine tuning your pitch and really also figuring out what, what it is about your business that, um, is, um, is, is worth investing in. Um, you know, there's lots of great products out there and there's lots of great approaches and there's lots of great management teams, but do you, do you have that all together and do you have a game plan for getting to the next level? Mm-hmm. And, um, is that a game plan that feels realistic and ownable and achievable? Um, and if it is, then investors can get behind it. So what were some of the worst and best experiences you had with investors? You know, I think I, this was their so worst and best experiences. Um, one of the great pieces of advice I was given, and this wasn't until after we closed the seed round, um, but I'm using it now was very interesting dynamic between how women approach um, fundraising versus men. And I what is realized, that? And so I realized that I was very guilty of this once it was explained to me by a mentor. And I said, absolutely, yes. It was kind of this aha moment. When a woman approaches an investor, typically, um, she and I've talked to so many female founders who've all said this, yes, 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 this is exactly was my mindset. Um, the investor will say, really interesting concept, um, like it a little too early for us, come back to us in a year when you're further along. And so I took that away and I was like, okay, great. Let me mark my calendar for a year from now and I'll come back to them. A man in the same situation or many men will, will diligently follow up every month. It's like, here's an update. Here's an update. Here's what yeah. we're doing. Just really staying in touch. And, and I think about building relationships, but also, um, somehow missed it that I was sort of taking the the feedback at face value and mm. not um, instinctually, you know, saying that's an open a door opening an opportunity to continue the dialogue on a very regular basis. Um, so I thought that was really, um, that was one interesting takeaway that I've definitely incorporated now. And so now it's also, you know, it's impossible to have, you know, one on to run your business and yeah. also um, keep a list of a couple hundred investors who you're emailing with. On a it's interesting though. Basis. I know. Well, when an investor says that though, sometimes they also just are trying to be nice and they actually mean no, like don't even come back to me in a year, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do agree with you that there's this 
follow-up kind of required in the fundraising process that no one talks about that within like, you know, if you're fundraising, you need like at least six months before you need those checks in your bank to be building a relationship with an investor, sending them updates every month, being in contact with them and keeping them excited about your progress. Because when you ask for that check and you haven't done that, they're like, who are you? You know, there's no relationship there. Absolutely. No, at the end of the day, it's all relationships. It's, it, there's a lot, there's a personal dynamic of, I think the investor, be- it, it's so true when they say the investor needs to believe in the founder. It yeah. is, it, it is about the business. It's about the potential, but it's also believing the founder can take that, the business there. And I've experienced that. I've gotten that feedback firsthand. I've experienced it from yeses and nos. Um, but I think that that's very true. And there's no better way to, you know, show an investor that you can do that than constant progress every month saying, Hey, look what I'm doing. And it's building this trust, you know, in you as a founder. Absolutely. And I think actually to that, to that point, for me, it's actually very daunting to say, I, cause then I'm like, you know, I have a long to-do list. I'm like adding this to the list, but is it going to get done or am I going to do it right or well? So what I started to do is I said, okay, I'm going to set a realistic goal for myself. It's quarterly updates. And I built a list. And that's the other thing. It doesn't have to be um, an, a meaningful one-hour dialogue every month with each individual. Right. And it just has to be a, a touch point because yep. then it invites them to say, oh, I'm reminded of you. I'm reminded yep. of your brand. Love what you're doing. Let, and then those who are most interested and it varies each time will connect and continue the dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It doesn't have to be, like you said, an hour conversation or coffees every week. It's really just an email saying, Hey, look what we're doing. Here's some bullet points. And it's just a refresher reminder that you're out there, you know, doing it and making things happen. I mean, really it's, it's a lot of marketing. It's a lot of everything these days is we're all too busy. We're all overwhelmed and it's whatever is top of mind, most recent, most present gets noticed. And so you just have to like, it's, it's a sort of a fundamental in so many things, but it applies here in investing too. Investing has been, um, raising, raising capital has been, you know, huge learning curve for me that I feel, um, actually now by no means do I feel an expert or, or, or necessarily even great at it, but, um, I'm very proud of myself and how much I've learned. Um, what else have you learned? What are some other things that you've learned along the way in the fundraising process that you kind of wish you knew a little earlier? I think um, this applies to fundraising and generally running the business. And it really, you know, COVID has really driven it home for me and probably most brands is really the fundamentals around um, financials and cash flow and being deep, deep, deep in our numbers. Um, and our, our lead investor from our seed round, Fernbrook um, Capital, it's a small fund out of, out of New York. They've been wonderful. And um, the principal there who had given, you know, he's, he's great advice. And, you know, the thing that I need to be most focused on right now is making sure we have cash in the bank, making sure we have the runway to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that advice was given pre COVID, but it's become, you know, so uber important now, but the fundraising process and just really understanding fundamentally your financials and your KPIs and what is working in your business and where are your shortfalls? Um, you know, I, I'm so much closer to it than I ever realized I would have needed to be if you had asked me in April of 2018. Yeah. At the very beginning. So that's been, you know, um, I think an incredible lesson that I take forward. Um, I think one of the other big challenges I've had in fundraising is trusting my gut. Um, and to your point, you need to be fundraising six months to nine months, even before you really need the funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not the case for us in the first, in the first wave. Um, it was sort of, we were bootstrapping and then we were like, oh, we're going to need more capital. And so, um, you know, playing a little bit of catch up, which this wasn't necessarily from this time, but I learned over many conversations with investors that, um, if an investor is sort of pushing, um, in a line of questioning around you, your company or your product, and it's not aligned with where your strategy is going, there, there may be, there may not be a fit there. So, you know, really trust your gut in, you know, it's a two way street and this is person, even if they're not super active is still going to be in, you know, part of your company in a way and, um, make sure that you're, you're screening for personality fit, just as if you were hiring. 
um, for somebody to work at your company. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, founders are just looking, hunting for the money, you know, and they just smell the money and they're like, just trying to make the relationship work. And it's, you know, it might not be there. And it's important to just realize, Hey, you know what? I don't think that this is actually a really good fit. There's so many times when I was fundraising that I look back and I'm like, I wish I would have just walked out of the room. I mean, what was I doing to myself? You know, it's, it's really like now I'd feel like, I hope I would never tolerate that ever again, but you can kind of tell pretty quickly if people are wasting your time. Absolutely. And, and I think I learned that through experience. Um, and I hope that like by saying this, some people, you know, may trust their gut or intuition a little sooner, but I also think you yeah. just do learn through experience. You might need only to have one experience, but then you're like, yep, yep. That's, that's not right. That's not the right fit. And it's not the best use of my time to continue down these types of conversations or these paths. Yeah. And I think it's important for founders to realize too, it's a numbers game in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of investors out there actually. (laughs) And it might not be in your current pipeline, but you better start beefing it up. Because once you realize there's like hundreds of investors to choose from, you can start to be a lot more selective and a lot more meaningful in your uh, meetings. Absolutely. I think what worked for us and it was a sort of, um, it unfolded very naturally and I wasn't expecting it, but now now knowing what I know, I think it's quite common is, yes, there are so many investors out there. Mm-hmm. I would say, say tens of thousands. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and like so, so many. And, um, you know, if you have, if you have something that's interesting and relevant, it might not be the right fit for many, but they'll pass you on. So we actually got connected to our first, you know, um, sort of really it's an individual who's super immersed in investing and um, has been an amazing asset for us and, and resource. And we connected with him early on. We connected with him because we were introduced to somebody, shared our pitch, wasn't the right fit. They passed us on to someone else, shared our story, wasn't the right fit. We were too early for them. I still keep in touch with them. And they passed me on to this person. And so just kind of following the trail and just continuing to have conversations they, the ones that aren't productive are productive in a different way that you're not expecting. Yeah. I mean, especially if like you're saying that they, they had real interest, but it just wasn't good timing for their fund. I mean, that to me, it makes sense and could lead to an investor that they pass you to actually investing. I feel like sometimes investors might offer to do that. And then it's maybe not a good idea to get a, you know, (laughs) a um, referral from this person who's not investing because the investor is going to say, Hey, why aren't you investing? And if they don't really have a good reason and timing is a good reason, but if they're like, you know, it kind of can look bad on the founder, I think, when that happens, if that happens. Um, yeah, I think that's also comes back to, you know, trusting the gut if like there's a good personality fit to begin with. Right. Like if you had a really great conversation, but it's genuinely just not a fit for a very valid reason. Their yep. fund is focused on tech and they yep. were though maybe concerning, but you know what? Not for us, but I love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Great reason, you yes. know, and stages too we only invest when you've hit this, this revenue threshold. Yep. It's always a really, you know, um, sort of a no brainer if that's why they're not investing and mm-hmm. this genuine interest is probably pretty genuine. Yes. Agreed with that. So tell us one of the most challenging moments that you've had in building your business and how you overcame it. Um, one of the most challenging moments, um, I think early on, Um, when we launched, uh, scaling up our production and maintaining the product quality that I was looking for, um, did not happen easily. And there, um, there were sort of two effects from this one. We launched in April, 2018 in July of 2018, we were out of stock for the entire month. Um, and there was great demand and, um, also production issues and it, killed me. Um, it was not only it killed me because, you know, loss of momentum and, you know, just wanting to continue doing what we were doing, but also, um, you know, I, my expertise is not in, you know, operations and, um, at the production level at the factory, help we own our formula. It is, was super important to me to work with a chemist, to have this formula, to own it and be able to control the quality and, and control the ingredient sourcing, even though we partner with the contract manufacturing partner. But this is something I learned out of my experience in the beauty industry was ownership of your formula leads to more control and that can translate to more transparency. And that's what we're all about. Um, but where 
this, um, how this played out in this particular case is own my formula. I have to help my manufacturing partner figure out how to scale my formula up when I'm not a technical, you know, formula expert. Um, so brought in some experts and we got there, but it was, um, it was challenging and, you know, mentally challenging for me to have, um, to seek out the, the resources that could really support it and have the patience to get there. Yeah. And that momentum um, that you mentioned, you know, it's such a roller coaster. And when things are going super well and you're selling lots of product and then, er, you know, the brakes yeah. just come come in, it's, it's tough to get back into that movement of momentum. Um, yeah. Cool. We, well, we did though. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a CEO? The biggest thing that I've learned or the sort of the, I'd say the most um, impactful practice that I've been able to put in place is uh, insane time management, you know, really understanding the value of my time and where I'm spending my time and constantly, um, you know, focusing on, is this the best use of my time? actively deprioritizing things, even though I really want to tackle them, forcing myself to do the things I don't necessarily want to do or are harder or I don't know as well, accounting and finance that I now know really well. Um, but yeah, I think time, the value of my time has been um, something I've never put as much emphasis and focus on until I became CEO. Yeah. And what kind of qualities, um, kind of on the entrepreneur route, what kind of uh, characteristics do you think make up a really strong entrepreneur? I think my journey is a little bit different because I had lots of corporate experience that sort of progressively started from big companies and then I went to smaller brands and then even startups. And, um, you know, I, I think that progression really gave me the confidence to start type A. Because I had seen very, you know, various organizations at various stages, and and also made all of these connections, and felt, and, and there was a real learning curve there that ultimately became my um, my company. I think a lot of founders don't have that; they come from very different paths, which is there's no right or wrong. So I feel like I might be atypical, um, but the things that have served me really well are having confidence in myself and my abilities, um, and knowing and and being open with myself and just kind of very self-aware and constantly almost um, challenging myself to say, do you know this well enough? Is there somebody else you can ask? You know, is there someone else we need to bring in? Really just, um, you know, looking for help and asking for help. Um, and then the other thing that has served us really well is just a lot of mantras. Um, and this is just kind of California, <laughs> California <laughs> crunchy. But, um, I, I find myself, I have started doing this since we, since we started selling product. Um, I, I have mantras that I say to myself almost daily and that sort of bolster my confidence. When Can you share I some like... of your mantras <laughs> or is that like bad um, luck? I don't know. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, in the early days, they were very much like, I believe I can do this. We will mm -hmm. be, it, it just, it was, it's simple, really. Yeah. Um, I believe um, I would even put like um, KPI revenue goals in some nice. of my mantras. We will hit this number by this date. Doesn't matter if it happened or not, but actually kind of materialized. And I yeah. don't know if this is manifestation or not. And I'm not sure I, I am. I think I'm it there. is, but. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's also, it just, you know, there are so many times where self-doubt really easily creeps in. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, just it, it is, there's a power in saying something until you believe it. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. That's why I wanted to hear what your uh, mantras were, because, <laughs> you know, I think we all should be using them. Yeah. Um, it's my really important. Yeah. My mantra right now is um, we can do this. It is, it's been a really tough year and we've yeah. been thrown a lot of curveballs. We launched at Target. Um, less than two years after, um, after going, you know, launching into the market and it was February of 2020, we were soaring in February and then in March, you know, things changed really dramatically. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're holding our own and we're following the curve of, of the, the, the category, 
Um, deodorant usage is down in COVID. People are using less deodorant as a category. Right. In the market, it's sales are down. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I'll, and there's been some interesting, like anecdotal just about, you know, personal care usage in general and everyone being at home. Um, so everyone's, <laughs> sounds like there's a lot of stinky homes out there. I think so. Not detrimental <laughs> though. Listen, people are also looking for clean products and they're right. really excited about type A. So lots of positives, but just got to focus on that. Um, we will get through this. I like it. That's awesome. I like that mantra. Um, thank you for sharing that because I think that's, uh, you know, another thing that a lot of founders don't like to talk about, you know, is there, um, maybe secret weapons that keep them positive and, and motivated every day. And those are really important, um, to be talked about. So, um, what kind of advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs as we kind of wrap up here? What we've given tons of great insights, um, lots of great advice, but do you have anything else you'd like to leave the audience with? My advice would be to believe in yourself, find a couple mantras, uh, and, and also really remain, remain humble and open. Um, I think what, you know, believe that you, you know, something really well, you have a great product, you have a great concept, um, think it through, stress test it and be open to the, the tough feedback that will ultimately make it a better fit for the market, make it a better business, um, and, you know, give you a better platform, um, you know, to, to launch and grow. And what's the vision for the future or what kind of big plans do you hope for, for next year? Um, keep on growing. Uh, people have been continue to be really excited about our product. We continue to get, you know, the most amazing feedback from customers, from, media influencers from retailers, um, so much interest. So we just want to keep bringing our sort of no sacrifice deodorant to as many people as possible. Um, we definitely have some growth. We actually just launched in Meyer. Um, Congrats. It was super exciting to be able to do in the middle of, of this tough time. And, and we have some more, some more growth planned for next year and also more product. Um, deodorant's amazing, but we know we can set the bar high for efficacy and a performance and also be super safe in other categories. And so we have some new product coming out that um, I think will be um, yeah, a new level for us. Very cool. Well, I can't wait to see what other products you guys come out with. I um, I think I met your team at the Founder Made event that you guys were in at LA. It's yeah. how I discovered your brand a couple of years ago, like two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I yeah. love hearing that. Yeah. Definitely. Founder Made is incredible. We had the best experience with them. Yeah. It's a pretty cool show. Yeah. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. It was awesome hearing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.